Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. This week I'm joined by Dr. Bryony Bamford. Bryony is the founder of the London Centre of Eating Disorders and Body Image and this week we discuss the importance of an MDT team in supporting people with eating disorders and body image concerns and we also discuss further how eating disorders and body image can be entwined and also how body image cannot be an element of somebody's eating disorder. We talk about body dysmorphia and also the information that is needed by clinicians to understand that not everybody will have a diagnosable eating disorder, but their condition is worthy of just as much support. Hello. Hi, Hannah. How are you? I'm okay. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. Oh, good. I last minute had a headphone disaster. So I've had to borrow my husband's headphones which I'm not Very used nice. to at all, and I hope I can work them out. And then I had a Chrome disaster. But oh, God. Yeah, I should I should love. put, like, a disclosure on the email to everyone. Like, beware of Chrome, because I swear, like, the past five podcasts I've recorded have been, everyone's just had issues with Chrome. Um, yeah. Well, it updates all the time, doesn't it? Yes, and so it would need an update just, be- yeah. just before. It's always when you don't want to update Literally. something that it needs an update, <laughs> isn't it? Always, yeah. every time. Yeah. Literally having this conversation at work the other day, someone was like, "Is everyone else's Chrome updating all the time?" And I was like, "Yes." And then it says like, "Chrome's going to update in forty minutes," and I'm like, "Yeah, cool, whatever, forty minutes." And then I'm on a call, and then it updates, and I'm just like, "Okay, everything's fine." It's so annoying. (laughs) It's so annoying, and I put it off and I put it off until something like this, and it's like, "You can't put it off anymore." (laughs) You need to have the latest updates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm, honestly, I'm so excited to chat to you. I actually went to the um, Body Dysmorphic Disorder Conference on Saturday. So this feels really nicely timed with all the nice. learnings that I had on Saturday and then speaking to you about body image today. Lovely, lovely. Yeah. Good. Yes. How was it? Was it good? It was really good. It was a very emotional day. Um I think because, so I think I said to you before, like I, I struggle with body dysmorphia myself. So I went for full of beans, um, but there was a lot of people talking about their lived experience. And it was it was a really interesting dynamic actually. I was speaking to a friend and saying how it's so interesting from a research perspective, because I've done research. It's so interesting to like hear about the research that people are doing on body image and body dysmorphia and stuff like that. But then when they're talking about like participants and the research that they're doing, you realise you're a subject. And then it's like, yeah, that was quite a hard thing. But it's, it's strange because like I've done research on eating disorders before and I've never been affected about like learning about anorexia or learning about excessive exercise, that sort of thing. But the body dysmorphia felt like, oh, like I'm now a subject and you're trying to work me out sort of thing. Yeah interesting I wonder what the difference is there yeah yeah I don't know um I think the difference for me is that my eating disorder I think body dysmorphia was like the foundation the start yes um and yeah. then the which it isn't disorder. for everybody but of course mm-hmm. if it is then that's probably a much more powerful impact in thinking about yeah those difficulties which we will totally come on to today to talk about body image and eating disorders and all that amazing content that we're going to talk about um so I guess to start with um do you want to introduce yourself introduce your clinic um yeah a little bit about the work that you do my name is Brian Bamford I'm by training a clinical psychologist so I trained as a clinical psychologist um nearly 20 years ago now and now work uh well I'm clinical director and founder I guess of of the London Centre for Eating Disorders and Body Image and we founded 10 years ago 10 years ago this year so it's been a while it's a milestone I know um and we we start the intention I guess is very much to be a specialist eating disorder 
and body image clinic. Mm -hmm. So we started off primarily as a group of psychologists who specialised in eating disorders, um, who practice in both an evidence-based way, but also holistic person-centered way. And those are two things that I'm so passionate about. And often I think that they are regarded as as slightly incompatible but they're so compatible you know you can be an evidence-based practitioner but also a person-centered holistic practitioner and when I founded it my um I mean I, I can I can talk to you a bit more about a lot of the frustrations that I was having as a clinician before founding TLC but it was very much based on the desire to be a clinic that offered specialist care in a slightly more flexible way, perhaps, than some of the, um, I guess, than often than NHS clinics, but also um, also a genuine, genuinely a specialist mm-hmm. treatment clinic. So I think there were a lot of clinics at the time that would see eating disorders as part of, um, you know, as one presentation of many, but there were far fewer, if if any kind of specialist therapy-led eating disorder clinics and from there um you know we've we've kind of we've grown in size but we've also grown in terms of the types of treatments that we offer we can be a lot more holistic now because we have a much bigger MDT so we now comprise not only psychologists psychotherapists family therapists occupational therapists dietitians nutritionists um and and very recently added psychiatry as well so it really is kind of a a very very highly specialist clinic with the intention of being able to meet all clients where they're at but offer them what they need rather than being only able to offer one type of treatment if you like and is that so just I guess for people that maybe um aren't quite aware of the terminology so when you're talking about like holistic person-centered is that what you mean by that you've got so many different disciplines and different types of specialists that you're able to sort of meet that person with what they need rather than you know here's this one evidence-based treatment that right might not work you can do several evidence-based treatments and kind of have a think what's going to work for someone I mean I think for me it means two things really I think it means being able to be flexible as a clinician So, you know, we have our evidence based models that we know are really effective and work really well. But of course, they're never going to work for everybody. Mm. There's never going to be such a thing as one model that works for all people with an eating disorder. That takes no account of individual difference or, um, you know, in a psychologist, we work in a very formulation based way. So we understand the kind of the the whys and the details rather than just in a diagnostic led way Mm -hmm. so it means as a clinician really being able to think about what treatment model is going to work or what integration of treatment models is going to work best but it also means I think recognizing that for some people psychology will be what is needed Mm -hmm. for some people psychology will be what is needed at a certain point in their treatment journey but not at a different point for some people psychology isn't quite what's needed and they might need you know something they might need family therapy or they might need psychotherapy or they might need occupational therapy or just dietetics and and not you know not not have that need or that ability in that moment to go into the more underlying psychological aspects of their difficulties so i think it's both flexibility as a as a treating clinician but it's also the ability to bring in different different clinicians or different kind of disciplines as is needed Mm, yeah and I think that's the fantastic thing about sort of an MDT team um and having that holistic approach is that you can bring in different people at different stages because I think often you know people are given one form of treatment that's supposed supposedly gonna mean that they're then recovered after that um but you know things change as you go along and you might need different people to work with you along the journey yeah and you often do you know I think Mm. that's the reality is it's not occasionally it might you might need to bring in different people I think I think with eating disorders often you need to bring in different people Mm. so I, I mean there's so many advantages I think of having 
a multidisciplinary team. One of those advantages is that you can speak to your team and get support from your team. Mm. And as a clinician, that's incredibly helpful. You know, what do you think? What are you kind of what what might your guidance or your perspective be? And I think that's incredibly helpful as a as a clinician. But I also think, um, you, you know, as a as a client, you might start off with psychology and then you might realize that actually, you know, just a little bit of specialist dietetic input would be really, really helpful mm. at this point. That's something I could really, really use. And later on, you might think, you know what, I feel like I've really got on top of this, but life is life is feeling difficult to catch up with. I could really do with some OT input. Mm. Or you might think, you know what, I feel like I'm getting on top of this, but my mo- I'm really struggling with my mood. I'd just like to speak to someone about what, what medication might offer or whether it might be, you know, it might be kind of beneficial for me to consider medication. You might get to the end of your kind of therapy journey and you might think, I'm ready to end therapy, but I'm also incredibly anxious about ending therapy because it feels like a huge you know, a, a huge jump from kind of regular therapy to to contemplating ending. So we've recently brought in recovery counselling, which is a you know a, a way of just very ad hoc having somebody that if you're if you're having a really difficult week, if you're struggling, you know you've got someone to turn to. And that's not really something you can do so much in in psychological therapy, which tends to be, you know, the model of psychological therapy tends to be weekly or fortnightly, but certainly sort of regular. Mm-hmm. Um, therapy sessions and you need that you, you kind of you need that regularity to keep the momentum going and to keep the kind of change going but once you've once you've made those changes and it's more about maintaining those changes knowing that actually you can dip in and in, in and out of support with someone that's known to you can be really beneficial so that's another example of where kind of working within a team and having that ability to refer on or think about why not just meet with a dietitian and see if it would be useful or meet with mm. family therapy. So your so your you know your support system around you can think about whether they might need some extra education or some extra support is just so beneficial, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um a really good point what you were saying there about I think a lot of people um you know, the the thought of going from intensive therapy every week or every two weeks to then having no support whatsoever. Yeah can be terrifying Often, I think I I think a lot of people would then almost want to keep the eating disorder behaviors to be like oh no no I'm not recovered because I don't want to also now lose you kind of transfer yeah. from the support of the eating disorder to the support of the therapist or whoever yeah. you're working with and then kind of have um have nothing feel like you have nothing but yeah. also I what I was just thinking about there when you were talking about working in MDT um when I worked in eating disorders something I definitely noticed was I mean obviously they didn't have the qualification but the fantastic thing about like you know having an MDT of psychiatrists um psychologists dietitians that sort of thing they all start to learn off each other and I remember like speaking to the OT and she'd be like you know I'm not a dietitian but I've worked with a dietitian for 10 years or so so I can support my patients now with like different eating patterns and and stuff like that and obviously I still would refer them on to the dietitian if required but it just means that they've got that extra level of insight rather than you know just the training that they've had yeah yeah, absolutely. And sometimes there is just, you know, there's just a very kind of specialist. I'm struggling to think of an example, but there's a very, a really specialist kind of presentation that you just want to run past the dietitian. And mm. you may not be able to to do that if you're working kind of in isolation or outside of an MDT. And, you know, we have regular MDT catch ups, complex case discussions where we can think about, you know, really outside of the just that support session that, that each client has we can really think as a team about you know is this are we are we really offering best practice is there anything different that we could do have you got any thoughts anything that you that you think might be helpful here so I think it's really really useful both from a client perspective and also from a clinician perspective yeah, as you say I imagine for for clinicians as well like the it's funny I was I was speaking to um when I was at the Body Dysmorphia conference the other day, I was speaking to Dr. Rob Wilson and mm. he was asking me like how I was finding the day. And I said, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. It's just a very emotional day because everybody's talking about body image and that's something so prominent for me right now. And um, I said, you know, it can be a really isolating experience to struggle with an eating disorder and body image because at the end of the day, you can 
it's all in your head and you can't like I can try and vocalize to you as much as possible but I don't think there's any way to get across like how how an eating disorder makes you feel and he actually said how he had also really felt value from the day because you know in his normal practice he is a um therapist and he's working with people one-on-one he can't exactly go home whilst he sat around the table at dinner and say you know I had this client today and then this happened and I, it really affected me but mm. when you've got the MDT team you do have that space to talk about that and to yeah. talk things through and you know if you've got concerns about how a patient is you can talk to somebody and obviously yeah. like when you're working on your own you have supervision but I think there's just that extra level of like feeling like a team rather than just feeling like you're holding someone on their own. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. And I think, you know, something else that I'm really, have really become, I think, much more passionate about than I probably was 10 years ago, but is kind of team well-being. Mm -hmm. You know, essentially that's a big part of my role now is kind of looking after the the team and making sure that the team feel that they are supported and they are also developing and and learning um and I think that supervision you know supervision is is vital but something that I personally feel is really important is that supervision is something that's accessed regularly but also something that's available kind of PRN if you like you know ad hoc that actually Mm -hmm. it's there when you need it as a clinician because the model of supervision for a lot of people even you you know even within certain certain teams is you'll have your fortnightly supervision or your monthly supervision and it's and it's kind of scheduled in but actually sometimes you need supervision when you've just seen a client and you're thinking actually Mm. I really need to think that through or I'm feeling I'm suddenly aware that the client is feeling quite stuck and I want to think about this with someone or actually I'm really concerned about this client because it feels like risk is changing mm-hmm. and that's where excuse me that's when you need that support and that supervision and I think that if you look at a lot of specialist eating disorder teams a lot of teams especially across the NHS I think staff burnout is incredibly high now and how can you support your clients your patients kind of as well as you possibly could if you are also burning out it's just Mm. it makes no sense to me so actually uh, kind of that that ad hoc supervision model on top of regular supervision is something that I've really become quite passionate about and and I do feel is hugely important and that's you know that's what you can do within a good functioning MDT yeah I think it's so important the element of staff well-being because I think you know, any sort of healthcare profession, um, you are in within your job, your role is to look after people and to put patients before yourself in terms of, you know, when you're you're supporting them and stuff, it's the focus yeah. is on them rather than the yes. focus being on you. Of course. And of course. I think regardless of your own like even if you have a fantastic relationship with your body and food and and you always have I think when it becomes nine till five and the only conversations you're having are around food and body I know when I was working um in eating disorders like it just become very draining because you don't even Mm. if you're having a conversation that's not necessarily related to food and body when you're with a client it's still very heavy and you know you're holding them Mm -hmm. for that 45 minutes 60 minutes however long you're with somebody um but if you've got several people that you're seeing a day like it's a very kind of difficult topic to talk about because we all have to exist in body we all have to eat so I think you do then start to maybe question your own beliefs around food and body and just having somewhere to you know, take all those thoughts and process them so that then they don't become an issue for you. Um, I think it's really important to be able to have that space to talk about how you feel about working yeah. with the patient as well. Yeah, yeah. And even outside of those areas, you know, clinicians are human beings and they yeah. will go through human life experiences and sometimes those are hard. And I think, for example, that was something I became really conscious of during COVID when we were all suddenly thrown into this very mm. peculiar kind of life and you know that was hard for for the vast majority of people and being a therapist I think had its own challenges during that time when suddenly you were working from home you know you're used to kind of seeing people having people in front of you doing face-to-face work most therapists really really enjoy and value 
face-to-face work and you're suddenly sort of crammed in your front room trying to kind of best support people that are going through difficult things that are actually the same things that you were going through Mm -hmm. so you know that's that support and that kind of that contact I think with your team can be hugely crucial in having that kind of positive knock-on impact on being able to best support your clients which is which is what we all want to do at the at the end of the day yeah it's it's interesting isn't it because like before covid i mean it might have been a thing but i don't think many people saw therapists online i think therapy was seen as something it's definitely much rarer you go to a clinic you sit in a room together you know you, you sit in the comfy chair that sort of swallows you up and that sort of thing it wasn't necessarily done online mm-hmm. um but i think i you know i personally my therapist is online and for me it's really beneficial because it means that I can be in a safe space in my own home I don't have to travel um you know I can do it straight after work and I don't have to have that but equally I do appreciate you know the the kind of impact of having that in-person contact as well so it's it's difficult it's a balance but yeah I can imagine during COVID particularly people coming saying you know I feel isolated I'm not seeing friends and family it's really difficult and you're sat there like same yeah that this is yeah. what I'm going through too yeah yeah absolutely and I think you know I mean to your point about kind of the benefits of of remote working I think there's there's pros and cons absolutely I mean we did offer remote sessions before COVID but they were they were sort of exceptional if you like they were much yeah. much they were much much rarer and we would have you know our protocols around remote working were really different at that point we would always ask for a face-to-face assessment we wouldn't take on high risk clients remotely they would they would have to be um they would have to be in person so you know it was there was a lot more if you like kind of anxiety around it or just sort of um it was much more boundaried I I think there were they were there was much tighter protocols around it but then we were forced to do it and then we realized that actually it does work and that was wonderful in many many ways because that means you know specialist eating disorder treatment is something that is really 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 rare um in most definitely most parts of the world in most parts of the country as as well to access Mm -hmm. private specialist you know highly specialist eating disorder treatment is something it's becoming um it's slightly slightly easier to access now but it, it was you know really quite a rare thing to have specialist ED clinics they didn't they didn't exist outside of London yeah. um until much more recently and so being able to kind of offer that to people that otherwise wouldn't be able to access specialist treatment was a really really nice feeling you know and it still is a really nice feeling that people can now access specialist treatment um where where they wouldn't have been able to for geographical reasons before but equally you know it doesn't it doesn't always work and I think there is I think there is really something to be said for the the kind of the relationship that you can form face to face so it's nice now to be able to have the choice and for clients yeah. to have the choice of which which is easier for them and which is preferable, preferable yeah. to them. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's all about balance of thinking about what's going to be the most preferable or the most productive for for both the therapist and for the for the client as well in terms mm-hmm. of their um, recovery. And I, I want to come on to talking a bit about um, body image and eating disorders and kind of, I guess, the work that you do with your clients. And mm-hmm. when we spoke before, um, I was very happy to hear you know, you work with a range of different clients, so you don't have to specifically be diagnosed with an eating disorder to get support. So yeah, I wondered if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about kind of how you work with different clients and how you would support somebody, you know, with with those body image issues. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's two things in what you've just said. I think the first is that you don't have to be diagnosed with an eating disorder in order to access treatment. And to me, that's incredibly important because there's a lot of people out there that are really, really struggling that don't meet our kind of our diagnostic criteria, if you like, for a for a specific eating disorder. And one of the things that I genuinely feel does a lot of harm in this field is being told that you're not able to access treatment. You know, and there's lots of reasons why people are given that they're not able to access treatment. A really common one being that they're not seen as unwell 
enough often often due to kind of um frequency of certain behaviors criteria or weight criteria and I think those messages are so not only unhelpful but incredibly harmful and I see why services sometimes have to have them because you know if we look at the NHS for example it's it's so severely under-resourced that it would just be absolutely overwhelmed if it opened up to kind of it opened itself up to not not needing criteria for Mm. for kind of intake but equally in our service that was the one that was one of the things that I really really felt very strongly about was that there shouldn't be criteria if someone wanted help if someone wanted treatment that they should have every right to be able to access Mm. treatment so we don't I mean yes of course we see you know we we see the kind of recognized diagnosable eating disorders but we also see um you know a, a lot of people that would be I guess what we would refer to as kind of subclinical eating disorders so they have disordered eating but don't necessarily meet criteria for an eating disorder emotional eating might be an example of of someone who doesn't meet diagnostic criteria but is still really struggling with their relationship with food mm. and then body image as well and I think when I set up the clinic I think I was hugely aware that there were really quite a high number of people and I don't think you know I don't think we have the research to to fully understand how many people would fall into this kind of category but people who really really had a very problematic relationship with their body whether that's body dysmorphic disorder or whether that's again a non-diagnosable but a really really distressing relationship with their body that really impacts their day-to-day functioning and their emotional um, their emotional world, if you like, and that that you know BDD is an example of something that tends to often sit within the OCD sort of mm-hmm. category of diagnoses. So often people who um, who are OCD specialists will also work with BDD, and that's you know that's right because because there are there are crossovers and there are similarities. But BDD is something that also kind of can sit very easily within the eating disorder Mm. kind of field I think kind of historically I guess and and still now there there is an idea that you can't be diagnosed with BDD if you also meet diagnostic criteria for Mm, an eating disorder yes so it so um do you know I can't remember if it says this within the DSM I expect it does I think it does but but essentially if you your eating disorder diagnosis, if you like, trumps your kind of BDD diagnosis. Top trumps, right? <laughs> so you would so that so you'd get that diagnosis, mm. and your and your body dysmorphia would be seen as an aspect of or a kind of right. symptom of, if you like, your eating disorder. But the only reason for that, really, and actually, it was Rob Wilson and I who had a discussion, and he originally kind of discussed this with me because I was like, well, why is that? That makes little sense to me. Mm-hmm. But the reason for that really is that because eating disorders can present with such high risk that what you don't want is someone starting kind of classic BDD treatment when there's a really high risk situation there because of eating disorder behaviours, if that makes sense. So that's the only real reason why kind of theoretically you you shouldn't really be diagnosed with both Mm. presentations. Yeah, it's it that's that's really interesting. I didn't know that, and you're know, hearing me wandering around saying, "Well, I mean, I guess that is a stark example of why, you know, just kind of logistically saying that you shouldn't have two diagnoses uh, or the both diagnoses doesn't work because." personally like I was said at the start I feel like my body dysmorphia is the stronger element Mm. and the anorexia Mm. comes in and it comes out and plays a role of course um but the body dysmorphia has been there you know throughout the whole thing um yeah so I guess you know there's there's an example of of where that wouldn't work um but I also think um and I, I think I've heard this quite a lot like sometimes with anorexia and with body dysmorphia, the kind of energy restriction that you see in anorexia mm-hmm. could be a cause of the distortion. So I, I guess Can is that be. another reason yeah. in terms of you don't want to give somebody that diagnosis in yeah. case 
they then actually they don't have body dysmorphia it's just that they're seeing the distortions because of the low energy yeah it can do and certainly we know that you know we we talk about starvation syndrome so kind of one of the Mm -hmm. impacts of um of having kind of severe energy restriction if you like is that it can um and does generally distort your perception of your body but also change your kind of your emotions towards um and your kind of thoughts towards your body but I think it's a really interesting point because I think um you know sort of diagnosis issues aside I think as clinicians we do recognize that there are people who struggle with an eating disorder for whom body image is a really really central part of what kind of triggered the development of but also what maintains the eating disorder and there is definitely a subset of people that I think we recognize okay well just changing the eating disorder behaviors isn't gonna somehow miraculously change your relationship with your body and start kind of helping you move towards a place of of perceiving your body quite differently but it's a subset you know there there are equally people who struggle with eating disorders who it's really not about their Mm -hmm. body image at all you know that that had very very little if anything to do with onset or with the maintenance of their eating disorder so that's just that's an example of where you know differences in in kind of you know what could be seen as the same diagnosis but actually is really really quite different if you dig into the detail of that diagnosis needs to be thought about in a way that that kind of one model of treatment suits everybody just isn't going to cut it there you will obviously need to be doing you know yes a lot of a lot of sort of similar work but also you you know some quite different work and you'll need to be doing a lot more body image work um you know really quite targeted focused body image work with someone who would fall into that category of potentially having bdd alongside or certainly having um an eating disorder whose roots are sort of far far more um ingrained in body image difficulties than someone that doesn't and equally i think you know i think there was a period of time in the past that if you were someone with an eating disorder that said that you didn't struggle with body image you almost weren't believed Mm, you know it was almost like well of course you are you have an eating disorder and I think again that's another example of how in the past certainly and and you know and and I'm sure still now with people that that don't fully kind of get eating disorders that that kind of researchers or clinicians will sort of twist things slightly to fit with their understanding well this is an eating disorder so you must have body image difficulties yeah so I I mean to go back we've sort of tangented but to go back to your original question which is around work you know how do you work with body image I guess or I was saying you know it felt really important to me that we weren't just an eating disorder clinic that we also saw people mm-hmm. who had um who struggled with their relationship with their bodies and struggled with body image because to me kind of the field of eating disorders and the field of body image are so intertwined and we have to have as eating disorder clinicians we have to have you know really specialist knowledge and skills in working with body image so of course you can apply that to BDD and to other kind of body image difficulties as well but people don't often you know I think I, I think certainly outside of the field of eating disorders I think a lot of clinicians are quite anxious about working with mm-hmm. body image or quite avoidant of working with body image and to your point again I don't I don't fully know whether that's because they don't feel that they have the skills or whether potentially you know as you said we all have a relationship with our own bodies is it too triggering is it too difficult is it too you know but certainly we see I mean we we see a lot of people who've gone through goodness knows what kind of treatment before they eventually end up with kind of the specialist treatment that they need but even people that have gone through eating disorder treatment who just didn't you know didn't work on body image or didn't didn't talk to their therapist about body image and I think that avoidance is a problem because I think it's you know it's something that really needs to be focused on in therapy for those people whom it's a difficulty for yeah sometimes and I've heard this quite a lot from clinicians that work in eating disorders I think that eating disorder clients are seen as quite a difficult patient group because Mm. the kind of 
process is very slow and yeah. then it's gonna sound really bad but you know probably not the most grateful clients to work with in the short term because ultimately you're asking them to do something whether that's to stop exercising to start eating more to start eating more regularly to stop you know with their compensatory behaviors you're asking them to do something that feels like their only way to survive or to be safe um and I think so I think and because there's not really that like gratefulness and sometimes I think because of just the way that an eating disorder is you can sometimes come across quite rude I know that I personally in my recovery have like said to my therapist I think what you're talking is a lot of shit and you know (laughs) gone on and then afterwards I'm like oh my god I was just so rude um I think that's possibly an element of why people don't Mm. necessarily want to work with eating disorder clients but I think with that because it is such a difficult sort of thing to do and requires a lot of resilience actually the reward when a patient then does start to recover and to get better I can imagine is kind of so so rewarding um and I just wanted to go back to something that you were just saying and then I have a question um that I've been asking like everyone because I'm just trying to see what everyone's opinion is so first I'm going to just cycle back a little bit but um you said about like you said that when somebody is um, you know, does have a low energy intake, their body image and their perspective of themselves is distorted. Like, do we know mm. the science behind why that is? Because I think I just now I'm like, oh yeah, totally, that makes sense. But actually, when you said it, I was like, but why does it make sense that you would appear larger? Like, why? Mm-hmm. I feel like if somebody that without an eating disorder lost a lot of weight, they would be able to see that they had lost a lot of weight. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I think the answer to that is 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 quite complex in that I don't think there is a simple kind of answer to that. And we don't have a huge number of studies that look at that at that, because, of course, what you can't do now, you could do kind of, you know, yeah. decades ago. But what you can't do now is sort of starve people and test out what happens. <laughs> that is and very true. Yeah. So we sort of have to use, you know, we as clinicians, we still talk about the key study, which is kind of decades old now. Um but we we know um, that there are there are some there are very few and far between, but there are some studies that look at sort of people who, um, for example, go off kind of mountaineering or do ext- sort of extreme um, sports, if you like, who whose energy intake becomes kind of reduced from what it was, and 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 um, and we know that they report different relationships with their body. In terms of the science, I think. I think there's I think there's different aspects that contribute to that. I think that, you know, your your brain becomes affected, doesn't it? It becomes impaired that actually your brain needs a certain amount of energy to function um, healthily and to to function flexibly. And so just the impairment of your brain functioning leads to certain um, certain differences, one of one of which is your kind of view of your body I think your mood becomes really affected mm-hmm. by um you know people people report much higher levels of kind of low mood irritability etc when their um when their energy intake is impaired and of course what we know is that when you're feeling kind of irritable when you're feeling low in mood that you start to feel worse about most aspects mm. of yourself and so um you know, one of one of the ways in which that's that's potentially going to affect you is that you start to feel worse about your body. Mm, yeah. So I think there's I think there's lots of different sort of factors that feed in to that. Yeah. If you like. Yeah. Yeah. And there was me just expecting, you know, a simple, you know, this is what <laughs> it's only <vainly>, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We'd all be a lot richer if that was the case. Hey, um, I just think from like a evolutionary perspective, um like it's not it does it just doesn't seem logical because you know for me personally if I'm thinking about like evolution if you have lost a lot of weight then you would think that your body your brain would be like okay you really are struggling right now you need to get some Mm -hmm. food so the fact that it would make you think that you look larger it's almost like a coping mechanism so that you can deal with the fact that you've lost weight you know if you're out Mm. there in the desert and there's no food or whatever but then equally it's like you know you need a sign that that you need right. to get some food. 
But I also think that part of this picture is the kind of anxiety and preoccupation towards your yes. body, not not just the perceptual difference. Yeah. But actually, if you think about kind of the, the reasons why, you know, historically, if we go back to kind of hunter-gatherer times, why someone would be in an energy deficit, it was because there would be a famine. And you are, you know, one of the reasons why preoccupation with thoughts about food happens during starvation syndrome is that it's kind of functional to think constantly about food because that's your body's message that hey wait a minute you need to be focusing all of your attention on food and I think a similar thing can happen with body that actually you become very anxious about your body and very very preoccupied with your body and it's that anxiety and that preoccupation that often fuels a lot of the perceptual distortion yeah yeah no that's a really good point and maybe in a weird kind of way that like you know the obsession and the thoughts around your body is your brain's way of kind of telling you that it needs to change um yeah I think maybe yeah. you know eating disorders aren't <laughs> are not an evolutionary advantage um no, so the, the complexities of not. how uh they affect your brain are probably not just um you know to to allow you to survive um, certainly not but also, you know, let's remember that these are, you know, these are known as kind of what eating disorders are known as egosyntonic disorders, right? So they're functional. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons, to your point about why do a lot of people, a lot of clinicians kind of regard eating disorders as notoriously difficult to treat. And I think there's a, I think there's a few reasons why, um, why that is. But one of those kind of really significant reasons is that they're associated with really high levels of ambivalence. And that's because they work for a certain amount of time, certainly not forever, forever as we well know, they, they kind of perpetuate those difficulties and exacerbate those difficulties. But at the beginning, you know, no one, no one really chooses to have an eating disorder. No one wakes up one day and says, you know, what? I think it'd be really fun. Let's try anorexia. You know, actually, they're trying to they're trying to meet a need that isn't being met somewhere. They're trying to they're trying to meet, you know, achieve a function that isn't being met in other ways and so one of the reasons why body image often becomes worse kind of once someone has an eating disorder is also because it's 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 kind of in a non-conscious way it's the way of somebody keeping something that's incredibly hard to do you know gosh how punishing is it to have an eating disorder but that kind of works for them on a psychological Mm. level so there's that as well I think that often often the body image be sort of becomes um, part of what they need almost to keep up the behaviours that they're, they're using. And equally, I say that whilst, you know, one of the things I said right at the beginning, which I, which I feel so strongly about, is that everyone is different. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't talk about eating disorders as a kind of this is true for everybody. And as I said, you know, for some people, body image just won't be part of their yeah. disorder at all. It won't be part of the picture. Or their presentation at all but for a lot of people they will say you know yeah I've always had sort of underlying kind of body image distress or body image difficulties but it feels you know like it's really taken a life mm-hmm. of its own now and I think there again it's multifaceted the ways in which that is kind of exacerbated through the yeah through through having an eating disorder yeah and I think for me you know obviously this is just on a personal perspective um but I've really been thinking about it lately whilst I'm in recovery and weight restoring for me Mm. this relapse recently felt like I it it started because I was you know had so much hatred towards my body and there was that was so strong that it felt like the only way to sort of navigate this is to change the way that I look and so when I was at my lowest weight the body dysmorphia actually felt pretty, pretty maintained because whilst I still was never satisfied with the way that I look looked, I felt like I looked better than I did, yeah. you know, when I felt like I needed to make the change. And so yeah. I think that's why recently the body dysmorphia is becoming so loud again because yeah. my body's yeah. changing again. So yeah. I can completely see why people would keep resorting to the eating disorder as a way to get away from the body image concerns because it did kind of quiet down a little bit yeah the thing that you then have to think is 
you know, the eating disorder itself, it didn't actually make life easier because then, yes, I maybe didn't have as strong body image concerns, Mm -hmm. but I also had zero energy. I couldn't see my friends. Like I couldn't do anything. So the actual kind of not having body dysmorphia or the eating disorder is the preferable thing. Um, But And the thing with, of course, not being able to see your friends, not having energy to keep up with life is you start to hate yourself more because you're not really enjoying your life your life isn't giving you the positive kind of reward that yeah it should it should be giving you so it it sort of feeds back into that but I think it's also worth really acknowledging that it's kind of it's kind of an obvious quick solution isn't it if you're hating yourself or you're hating your body that that kind of okay well I'll just eat differently I'll just change my body feels like a much quicker and a much easier solution than actually addressing the reasons why you hate Mm. your body or you hate yourself which is is always going to take longer of course in the long run it's going to be much more fruitful and much more rewarding because wouldn't it be so much nicer to not have that body hatred to not have that self-hatred rather than to have to maintain an eating disorder to kind of quieten those thoughts those thoughts down but it's not easy and I think that that's why a lot of people kind of you know maintain that ambivalence that they recognize gosh this work that I need to do to have a better relationship with myself is it's tough and it's long and it's you know it's really hard work Mm. yeah absolutely yeah and I I think it's it's very difficult as well when we live in the society that we do in that you know a lot of people if they are not feeling confident in their body or if they are struggling you know going on a diet is seen as mm. as the thing to do and yeah. um yeah you know all culturally reinforced everywhere isn't it exactly yeah. exactly Absolutely. yeah and it's and I and I hate that you know it's, it's awful because you can't really get away from it but you know no. a lot of people you know just absolutely dread summer or dread January because they just know they're going to be exposed to so many more messages about about kind of idealized bodies and diets and etc cetera, etc cetera, and all those kind of triggering things that are really really hard for a lot of a lot of people to tolerate when they're in recovery yeah absolutely um and then the other thing that I wanted to ask which is my I don't think it's controversial. I think it's just something mm-hmm. that I'm exploring with people. Um, so I don't like labels. I don't like the diagnostic labels. And I think that mm. it would be more beneficial for people in recovery if rather than being diagnosed very specifically with anorexia or bulimia it was more of a broad diagnosis such as an eating disorder and then that would mean that somebody could kind of get support for their specific behaviors because for me I never felt like I when people said anorexia I was like that just doesn't fit with me like it the the the, the kind of behaviors I was displaying and that's taken me years to actually come to the point where I'm like no it doesn't work for me and I'm like I've had to deal with that to then be able to deal with whatever is going on um so yeah I was just wanting to ask your perspective of I know that we have to have diagnostic labels for for treatments and things like that but I think even that Mm. sometimes can be limiting because if there's one Mm. evidence-based treatment for bulimia let's say if that doesn't work for you it it's it makes it very difficult to then have other options yeah I uh, yeah I mean I would say in general I completely agree with you, you know the, the the reasons really why we have diagnostic criteria are well actually I think they're threefold I think they're partly for insurance purposes you know that's that especially in countries like America but also in the UK you have to have a diagnosis in order to be eligible for a kind of insurance funded Mm -hmm. treatment so a lot of diagnoses are given for that reason they're there for research that you know we need we need research into treatments for Mm -hmm. eating disorders and arguably it it is easier to uh, to get to get research grants for and to study treatments for kind of slightly narrower presentations of Mm -hmm. disordered eating Um, but I also think that, and this is probably far more of a controversial thing to say, but I think that historically 
mental health and specifically the field of eating disorders was quite ego led that I think that there were um, there was far more of a sense of, you know, I want to be the one to develop a treatment for such and such disorder. And people thought much more rigidly in the past, I think, about, um, you know, it was it was much more of a kind of medically um, focused field that the the people at the people kind of driving the treatments forward were often medics who were much more used to using diagnostic terms and diagnostic criteria. In reality, as a clinician, A, I think you know that people kind of change between diagnoses all the time. And B, I think you don't, um, you know, you, you don't place so much importance on those diagnoses. So if I'm seeing someone, you know, I'll do an assessment and and if they want a diagnosis, I might talk to them about what diagnostic criteria they might meet at that time. More often than not, I'm saying in the past, you probably would have met criteria for such and such. Now you probably would meet criteria for such and such. But it's really common to kind of move between different diagnostic criteria. But it will be the formulation and it will be the understanding, the individual understanding of an eating disorder that will inform what I think might be most helpful in terms of treatment. So as a clinician, it's, it doesn't hold that much meaning for me, if I'm honest. It's just a sort of shortcut way you know and, and as a team again often you know someone you know will, will be thinking as a team well sort of this is the presentation you know is it that diagnosis or is it that diagnosis and it doesn't really matter because it's not going to vastly change the treatment that you're offering or the recommendations that you're making it's more that well do we need to give a diagnosis because insurance wants it or because the client wants it sometimes and then you'll and then as I said you'll talk to them with flexibility about the fact that actually it could be this or it could be that and it might be different things at different times so personally I would come from more of a psychological perspective where actually I don't think it's hugely important and I do think that there would be value in having um more flexibility and we're, we're sort of moving there right like if you look at DSM-5 compared to DSM-4 there's a bit more flexibility finally they recognize that actually there shouldn't necessarily be a kind of weight criteria for mm-hmm. anorexia that you can be an anorexic in anybody at all but you know it's it's slow to catch up and there's still a lot of a lot of kind of changes that could be made changes change and I think you know there's whilst maybe the DSM-5 doesn't categorically reflect it I think there's more and more conversation around the fact of these things like anorexia can occur at any size and different things like that so if we're having the conversations and then that's being built into practice I think that is a really great step forward it's a step um, it's a step it's a small yeah. step but it's a step at least a small step but you know a small step forward is better than a massive step back <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah absolutely oh well Brian it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you um where can people go to find out more about you and also the London Centre for Eating Disorders and Body Image um I guess I'd probably refer people to our website mm-hmm. which is www.thelondoncentre.co.uk um if you enjoyed listening today really, you won't want really to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe how eating disorders are crippling illnesses have with the right support kind of you behind the scenes if you like we really hope you enjoyed this episode but if you require more support right now please look into charities such as first steps and be for support or talk to someone you trust brilliant well thank you so much it's honestly i don't know where the time has gone it's just i know it's flown hasn't it it really has yeah but it's been absolutely lovely to speak to you thank thank you for having me on it's been a it's been a pleasure for me as well and hopefully hopefully interesting absolutely yeah very much so (laughs) fab